Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly hit of royal news right here on Mail Plus. I'm Jo Elvin, your host, and here's what you have to look forward to on today's show. William the Ruthless. We look at reports that the prince has ditched an old pal for siding with Harry and Meghan. The news comes as our transatlantic royals have announced their first show for Netflix. But first, Andrew Morton is one of the world's leading royal biographers. He's written books on everybody from Prince Andrew to Kate and William, Meghan Markle, and probably most famously, the late Princess Diana. He's turning his eye now to the always intriguing relationship between the Queen and her late sister, Princess Margaret. Here's part one of our interview with him now. We can certainly see the repetition of history here, the air and the spare, parallels of character, the Queen, cautious, solid, steady, sensible, self-disciplined. All those words could apply to William and with Margaret, someone who's who kicks against the tracers, someone who is a bit of a royal, royal rebel, someone who uh, flouts convention. Well, with with Harry, you've you've got a, a mirror image of of Margaret in in terms of characters, and and it's also interesting as well that Elizabeth, growing up, always had her arm around Margaret, looking after her, looking out for her, making sure she didn't get into trouble, and and you have the same thing with with William, famously saying, you know, I've put my arm around Harry for all of his life, and I can't do it anymore. Um, it's it's a it's a fascinating parallel. It's almost like you know the the wheel turning and coming out with the same result. Um, for for Margaret, she had to make her own way, and for a long time she was quite lost and and alone in this. She 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 struggled to find a purpose in life, and I think it's one of the lessons I've learned from this from researching and writing this book is that it takes a long time to become a prince and a princess and a long time to be to, to find a, a position where you're comfortable. In the royal family, it's a general rule that if, if you're ill, you take an aspirin and carry on because they know from almost from birth that people rely on them, that there are engagements organised. You can't just let down hundreds, sometimes thousands of people by saying you're sick. And that also applies that also applies to mental illness. When Margaret was going through very severe difficulties, um, uh, her sister would would say, uh, you know, when she threatened suicide, you know, oh, she's going to throw, throw herself out of her bedroom window. Well, let her carry on because she, her bedroom's on the ground floor. So, so there was a kind of insouciance, a kind of indifference towards it. That said that when Diana appears on the scene and, and suffers from the eating disorder bulimia nervosa, um, the royal family had to take note of that kind of uh, uh, illness. And uh, she visited several uh, psychologists and psychiatrists in London, but Diana was a very different character to Meghan Markle. Meghan Markle, very confident, even as a, as a little girl, she would hand out prizes to the teachers in her, in a, in her school. She led a uh, uh, an anti-war protest when she was 10. So she was 
the polar opposite to Meghan Markle. She would have been quite jealous of the fact that Meghan is is very fluid and and very articulate in interviews and also when she gives speeches because Diana always wanted to be able to give a really good speech. Even though they were different characters, the trajectory of the way they were treated once they went went inside the royal family has remarkable similarities, uh, both by the media and also inside the palace. Diana felt rather lost, rather alone, uh, uh, very isolated. So too did Meghan Markle. That, that was their truth. When it comes to the media, in the beginning, what struck me was that Diana was blamed for members of staff leaving uh, and, and so on. And she was called a fiend and a monster when at the time, as she told me later, she was suffering from all kinds of ailments, uh, what she called the dark ages. But Diana was moving towards America herself. She was spending more time there. She was dating an American. Uh, she was even, for a time, she had a an ambition to be the first lady, which, of course, was just a, you know, a little bit of silliness, but nonetheless. Um, and she admired Americans, so she would have admired Meghan. But at the same time, I think she would have warmed to Catherine because Catherine, like Diana, was shy. She was a product of her background, and she's worked through it. And she sees her role as supporting her husband, just as Prince Philip saw his role supporting the Queen, two couples who supported each other through the vicissitudes of royal life. We'll have more of that interview to come, but for now, I'd like to get the thoughts of our Mail Plus panel. Joining me this week are the Daily Mail's Royal Editor, Rebecca English, the Mail on Sunday's Diary Editor, Charlotte Griffiths, and the Daily Mail's Saturday Diary Editor, Richard Eden. Rebecca, Andrew making the comparison there between the treatment of Diana in the royal family and the treatment of Megan, do you think the Queen just must be at the end of her rope with, you know, th this issue just constantly raising its head? There's no doubt. I mean, the last few years have been intensely frustrating for her. But you see, I fundamentally disagree with Andrew on this issue that the whole Megan situation is like Dan Diana repeating itself. Um, there's no doubt that the palace didn't handle Diana with all her complexities and all her frailties very well at all. Uh, and while I'm not saying they were entirely perfect in their dealings with Meghan, I, I, you know, I do know that people bent over backwards to help her in a way that they didn't bend over backwards to help Diana because they'd learned from those previous mistakes. So you know, I disagree with Andrew quite fundamentally on that. Richard, what do you make of this idea, this suggestion of Andrew's that Diana would have been jealous of Meghan's abilities? I mean, I, I slightly tire of the you know, women must hate each other kind of narrative. What, what's your view? Well, I think, of course, um, Morton's right that, you know, when um, Diana married into the royal family, it was so, such a different time, wasn't it, from when Meghan did? Because, you know, Diana was, you know, almost a child, really. What was she, 19? You know, and she had none of that training or background. You know, whereas Meghan was the professional, the trained actress, for me, um, the two women, they really represent sort of different sides of Diana's personality. You know, the sort of rebelliousness and um, unwillingness to conform that sort of Meghan shows. But then also Kate seems to stand for tradition in a way and for upholding all the things that Diana, you know, definitely valued. So it, it really is an interesting sort of reflection of two sides of her personality. I'm sure she would have loved both women, but would have been devastated by the way things have 
have turned out. Mm. Charlotte, what do you make of this idea that it's the shy royals who really finish first? You know, the, 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 the more demure, the quieter ones tend to have the roles they, they mould into the roles rather than trying to mould the roles to them. Is that a fair point? In a way, it's handing over your personality, isn't it? So, so those who are willing to give up their agency and their voice, as Megan might say, seem to be rewarded. But it's very hard to find someone who's willing to do that because you almost need to find somebody who feels like they've won the lottery of life just by marrying into the royal family and they're therefore willing to hand over their whole personality in exchange for this fantastic honour of being part of the royal family. But not everybody thinks that way, as we've learned. Well, I mean, and history has shown us, hasn't it, Rebecca, that while what's fresh in people's minds is, is Harry and Meghan's accusations about the, the treatment of the harsh treatment they've had in the press, but, you know, some reminders there that Diana had her moments as well. Absolutely. Though, again, I feel like I'm being slightly over-defensive maybe in this programme, but I again, I kind of take issue with the suggestion that what Harry and Meghan have been through is is in any way, shape or form like what happened to Diana. I mean, you know, Diana was subject to, uh, I have to say, it's very sad to say, unimaginable um, coverage, um, media intrusion, you know, the likes of which I just don't think we've seen again. I mean, when Meghan, when Meghan and Harry first started dating, everyone was thrilled, including the British press, because they thought finally he found someone who could withstand the pressure. But the problem is she already had a personality. And they bent over backwards, allowing her to paint her nails black, which was, you know, until Megan's Oprah interview, the worst thing you could do is wear a pair of tights and paint and uh, not wear a pair of tights and uh, paint your nails black. And they let her do all sorts of small sort of rule breaking. Diana, I, I think a lot of people would argue in her way, changed the, the shape and the course of the royal family and, and changed the way that um, William and Harry were raised and you know they're sort of much more emotive royals than we've seen in the past perhaps could it could it have been a good thing that she was allowed to sort of gently restructure certain protocols yeah I think it's created two incredibly warm um, young royals in William and Harry and who know how to go to McDonald's famously she took them to McDonald's didn't she um, and got them in touch with the real world um, and so in that in that way the, the good the good thing is they She's produced two very personable princes. Andrew Morton's book, Elizabeth and Margaret, The Intimate World of the Windsor Sisters, is out now. We'll have more of that interview very shortly. But for now, I want to turn to another story that's hit the news this week. And that is that of Prince William apparently breaking off his 20 year close friendship with the ITV presenter Tom Bradby. Rebecca English, what can you tell us about that now? This was written by a colleague on Mail Online. It's something I've touched on in the mail a couple of times, actually, over the past year. Now, for those who don't know, Tom Bradby is a very well-respected uh, newsreader and ITV and journalist. Um, but he's also enjoyed a long-term friendship with both William and Harry. But there's been really deep concern, I know, in palace circles, uh, going as back as far back as 2019, when he worked with Harry on a documentary around their Africa tour in which Meghan famously said, you know, no one had ever asked her if it were okay, and Harry uh, confirmed rumours of this schism between him and William. And I know that William and uh, many royal advisers watched this documentary with a deep sense of uncomfortableness about it. They felt that um, he was very firmly placing himself in the Harry and Meghan camp and being a bit of a conduit for them. Um, mm. There's been no there's been no row. Um, there's been no dramatic falling out, but you know, William is very good at cutting people out of his circle, and that's exactly what's happened to Bradby. And there's no sign of that ever changing in the future, I don't think. 
So just a bit of an icing off. I mean, Charlotte, last time you were on this program, you were discussing the fact that you know that William has a, a notorious ruthless streak. So have you seen this sort of thing before? Yeah, William is, is, is notorious for doing this kind of thing. He used to flush out his friends by planting crazy stories that weren't at all true. But Harry used to do that as well. And, uh, you know, they used to be very much on the same page, Harry and William. They would be united in their distrust of friends who might betray them. Um, and then over time, I think William grew to accept that a certain amount of stories come out and they're on the whole pretty harmless. But what Tom Bradbury's done is, you know, provided a huge platform for a really massive negative story. And uh, he didn't really push back on Harry too much. Um, and yeah, I mean, talk about flushing out. I mean, one of his friends has gone on national television and, you know, perpetuated a damaging story about him. Bradby's learning, you know, you can't run with a fox and chase with the hounds. I think it's um, it's very difficult. It really brings back for me memories of the War of the Walesers and how, you know, in the 80s, Prince Charles and Diana had their favoured journalists and you were very much in one camp or the other. Um, well, William and Harry have really carefully avoided that throughout their lives and they've never had um, journalists as close friends who they've used. So what Bradby was doing and acting as a sort of unpaid spokesman for Harry, um, really changed all that and I think would have horrified um, William. And so we are seeing the results of that. And this will cause a lot of anguish. I mean, remember that Bradby, you know, is a really important person historically because it was he who started the phone hacking saga. He was collaborating with Prince William on a TV project and they discovered that their messages, um, stories were appearing in the news of the world. You know, this led to a major scandal which transformed the um, British media. Um, so Bradby's been a very significant figure in the past. And indeed, his wife, Claudia, is an old friend of Kate's who worked with her at the clothes company Jigsaw. Um, is a jeweller. Kate's worn her jewellery. Um, so it's, it's a pretty horrible fallout. Coming back to you, Rebecca, Harry and Meghan have now revealed what they'll be producing for their first Netflix programme. What can you tell us about that? They have, and it's focusing on Invictus, which is the kind of Paralympic-style event that uh, Harry set up uh, for uh, injured British service personnel. And the work it does remark is remarkable. So this documentary will be focusing on next year's game, which is being held in the Netherlands, and the progress of some of these injured service personnel in working towards the games. Now, there has been some criticism that he's focusing on a charity that is, you know, an organisation that's very worthwhile. And he is making sure that money that would have gone to him and to Archwell is going to go to Invictus. But obviously, you know, he is producing for Netflix as part of a megabucks deal that him and Megan had arranged. So he kind of will be benefiting out of it professionally. But I still think it's a, it's a great, uh, a great idea and I think it will be a fascinating documentary of which he's going to appear on camera as well. I feel a bit awkward about saying this but it, I do feel uneasy because you know this is why the royal family was so concerned about Harry and Meghan's aims to um, try and make money um, because they're being paid millions of pounds from Netflix. Yes they will donate money from this particular documentary to Invictus but you know they got this deal on the back of projects like this. This is their flagship programme, which they're starting with, and they're doing it off the back of a charity, which, let's remember, was established with £1 million from the Royal Foundation 
at that time of William, Harry and Kate. And now it's William and Kate's foundation. And the British government matched that one million pounds. So, you know, it's it's a very sensitive thing and I, it leaves me feeling uneasy. Um, in a moment, we're going to go back to hearing about the Queen from Andrew Morton. But before we do, Charlotte, I just wanted to ask you a story that you've been covering, and that's the letters of support that Her Majesty has been inundated with in the wake of the Oprah interview. Yes, the Queen got inundated with these letters. And then last week I found myself inundated with these letters um, from well wishes to the Queen, who then sent me some of the letters that they'd got back from the Queen. And they were so touching to read because a lot of the letters addressed that Prince Philip had been unwell, but then separately addressed the Meghan well wishes. And they said things like um, the Queen, uh, you know, is genuinely grateful for support during this sad time. And this isn't to do with Philip, remember, this is saying that Meghan has been a sad time. It's quite the admission from the Queen. Um, and she said, said things like... Um, she repeated the word kind and in a lot of the letters, how kind everyone had been to her during the time. Her ladies-in-waiting have been working around the clock behind the scenes, responding to each of these letters individually. And it's not just a stop response because I've seen variation in the letters. I remember when I was at school, I think I was eight years old, and I wrote to the Queen because I had to do a school project and said, can I come and have a look at your palace? Um, didn't obviously <laughs> never knowing that I would go into this And you, you never scene. gave up on that wish, did you? <laughs> 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 well, I know I did, and I received a letter from one of the lady in waitings, which I've still got somewhere, saying, oh. "Well, thank you, thank you for your letter, Rebecca. I'm really excited about your school project." But we go can't away. Let, we can't. Yeah, we can't <laughs> let people in. But these are places that you can visit, and they sent me some leaflets and stuff like that. They're, you know, we should do a special on the ladies in waiting who write these letters. They're, they're amazing. That's a brilliant idea. Amazing. And they've been they're doing this job characterful. for years. Let's have a look at part two of our interview with Andrew Morton now and his insights into Princess Margaret's relationship with the divorcee that made international headlines. Does that sound familiar? I think the irony of the Queen's life is, is that she's seen as quite a cold and distant mother. But what she is, is a woman of strong emotions who was forced by circumstance to rein everything in. And when she became queen in 1952, people forget she was 26 and she had a young family and she, she just literally wasn't able to spend time with them. She, she, she went from being a Navy wife who was enjoying life with Prince Philip in the early years of their marriage, having two children in succession, uh, to being the CEO of uh, uh, GB Inc., Margaret's relationship with Peter Townsend or her love affair with him was probably at the worst possible time for the Queen. She'd literally just got her feet under the desk. She'd just, just become Queen. Everybody's thoughts were towards the coronation. And the last thing that she wanted was the coronation to be disrupted or to be overshadowed by some scandal with regards to Princess Margaret's love life with a divorced man. And, but what is fascinating about the whole Townsend affair is that the Queen was prepared in the end to accept criticism of the Crown, to, ac uh, to accept some kind of stain on the monarchy so that her sister could find happiness. Because in the end, there were no draconian penalties agreed upon. She, all Margaret had to do was give up her position in the line of succession. And all the talk of being living in exile, having no money, uh, giving up her title, 
uh, just faded away. And the documents that I looked at in the National Archives made it perfectly clear that the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, uh, and the Queen were working in concert with Margaret to um, facilitate her future happiness. Generally, the Queen seems more flexible and amenable than she was at the beginning of her reign. In the sunset of her reign, she seems totally in command, totally in control, but also more understanding of the vicissitudes that people, uh, members of her family have to go through. So the, the, there's no, and I think it's something she learned from, from Margaret herself and Margaret's relationships that uh, not to be so judgmental. Just a reminder that Andrew Morton's book, Elizabeth and Margaret, The Intimate World of the Windsor Sisters, is out now. And that's almost all we have time for today. Thanks to Andrew for being our guest, as well as our expert panel, Rebecca, Charlotte and Richard. We're going to leave you now with just a little bit more of a celebration of the Queen, a tiny bit of sneak preview footage of the ITV documentary, The Queen Unseen. Enjoy, and we'll see you next week on Palace Confidential. Now, the Duke of Edinburgh is trying to get on this lilo, and he has to have several attempts. The royal couples knew that we were filming, and they, they didn't seem to mind that we were. And the Queen also had an identical camera to my mother. She was also taking similar shots. That was the Queen's smile, which my mother very cleverly caught. Great fun, we loved it. <laughs>